Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 75 of History of the Marine Corps, The Banana Wars, Nicaragua, Part 1. Our last episode discussed marine activity in Cuba. At the height of the Cuban intervention, about a third of all Marines were on the island. This intervention was a massive undertaking for the Marine Corps. Towards the end of the episode, we discussed the decision to end the Platt Amendment, the reason why we were in Cuba in the first place. We conclude by introducing Nicaragua. This episode continues our last conversation, and we dive into Marines' actions in Nicaragua. Rebel forces were rampant throughout the country, and the United States sent in troops to help protect American lives and property. Marines were tasked with establishing neutral zones throughout the country, and soon, detachments were sent to multiple locations and provided protection against the Nicaraguan Civil War. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Between August 11th and August 14th, 1912, rebels bombarded the capital of Nicaragua. As soon as Smedley Butler and his 360 Marines landed, the rebels retreated. Marines deployed to various locations in Nicaragua to protect American interests and defend against another potential attack. The insurgents' retreat would only be temporary, and soon, rebels attacked Managua and surrounding cities again. One of the main targets were the railroads, and enemy factions disrupted train service to Corinto multiple times. On August 20th, Naval Commander Warren Terhune, in charge of U.S. forces in Managua, traveled by train back to his ship at Corinto. He had 40 sailors and 10 Marines with him. During the trip, rebels stopped U.S. troops at Lyon and confiscated the train from Terhune. With little option, he and his detachment had to walk 12 miles towards Corinto. A train carrying lumber picked up the U.S. detachment, and the group made their way back to the capital. When Terhune reached Managua, he asked Smedley Butler for help. Butler and part of his battalion boarded two trains with the naval commander and began the voyage back to Corinto to open the railroad. Railroad tracks and bridges were destroyed along the way, 
and it took two days for the Marines to reach their destination, as they frequently stopped to repair any damages caused by insurgents. It soon became clear that the number of Marines in Nicaragua wasn't sufficient to support their mission. Colonel Joseph H. Pendleton assembled a regiment of about 30 officers and 750 enlisted in Philadelphia. This fresh batch of Marines were sent to Nicaragua to supplement U.S. forces. The Navy sent multiple warships to support the Marines as well. On August 28th, American forces arrived. Rear Admiral Sutherland, commander of the California, pulled into port and immediately sent a detachment of Marines and 300 sailors to shore. The fresh troops were placed under Terhune, and their mission was to protect the railroad and ensure it remains operational. Smedley Butler was still in Corinto, with 50 Marines fixing railroad tracks and bridges. He received orders to join the new troops, and he immediately started to advance to Lyon. He reached his destination on September 1st. Detachments were garrisoned in four towns along the way, and Terhune had 300 men in Lyon. With protection embedded in key locations, Sutherland decided to open the railway to Granada, about 40 miles away. He prohibited Nicaraguan liberals from using the train, and added guards to protect against any attacks. When Pendleton arrived at Corinto on September 4th, he sent one battalion of Marines to Lyon. He sent the rest of his troops the following day, and after assessing the situation at Lyon, he left 1st Battalion there and ordered the remaining troops to Managua on September 6th. As Pendleton was distributing his Marines throughout Nicaragua, more U.S. troops would arrive to help. The Colorado pulled into port and dropped off 250 sailors and a detachment of Marines to help defend the railway. By the end of the first week in September, Sutherland successfully secured the railway and rebel forces no longer had this resource to support their cause. On September 11th, he issued a proclamation to locals, stating that, quote, His forces were acting under orders not to permit railroad transportation of munitions of war or armed bodies, the bombardment of any unfortified place, the inhumane treatment of prisoners, any acts of wanton barbarity, or any act not in strict accord with the rules of civilized warfare. Unquote. With the local area under control and transportation secured, the U.S. set its sight on Granada. The rebels in Granada and Messiah, located about 10 miles west, were occupied by insurgents, and the two cities were in a state of starvation. They also had to deal with the frequent, sometimes inhumane, attacks by rebel forces. Nicaraguan forces did little to stop these attacks. They were in the area, but they were waiting for the Marines to jump in and help. Sutherland's primary mission was to protect the railway, and he wanted to avoid interactions between the United States and the liberal rebels whenever possible. He responded to Nicaragua and advised them to take matters into their own hands. Nicaraguan troops followed Sutherland's advice and attempted a half-ass approach to stop rebel forces. Sutherland sent troops to Granada on September 13th to provide some sort of relief. The troops carried with them supplies from the Red Cross to help with the assistance. Pendleton led the troops assigned to this task, and he boarded a force of Marines and sailors on a train headed for Granada. 
As U.S. troops approached rebel territory, liberal forces requested a conference before allowing the train to pass. Pendleton agreed to this, and for two days the two groups met. The rebel leader eventually agreed to let the Marines pass, but as Smedley Butler's battalion proceeded, they were fired upon by rebel artillery, and a group of rebels attacked the train as it traveled through Messiah. The Marines quickly responded and drove off the attackers, but Butler still decided to withdraw the train in case the attacks continued. The rebel leader denied any involvement, but changed his decision on allowing the train to travel to Granada. He prohibited the train from moving forward and positioned troops on the western edge of Messiah, where the railroad passes through a small valley with elevated grounds on both sides of the track. The rebels controlled the hills, and anyone who traveled through those hills was at the mercy of the rebel troops. Pendleton sent a battalion of Marines and a battery of artillery to join Smedley Butler. He then notified the rebel leader that U.S. troops would attack the next morning if he didn't evacuate his troops. Initially, the insurgents refused. But as the Marines were preparing to attack on September 19th, he changed his mind and agreed to let the train pass without attacking. But a few rebels didn't get the memo, and as the train passed, they fired at the Marines. Three or four Marines were injured during this attack, and with little option, the Marines returned fire at the rebels. After a few minutes, the firing stopped, and the rebels had 56 killed and 70 injured. Butler set up camp in Messiah for the night, and he continued to Granada the next day. The Marines faced a few other delays on their trip, but Pendleton would arrive in Granada on September 22nd and quickly control the situation. The rebel forces embedded in the town agreed to surrender if they were allowed to pass out of the country and disarm his troops. The Nicaraguan government agreed, and the Marines took the responsibility of disarming rebel troops. Butler took the lead in this task, and soon, he was able to restore order. But even with Granada under control, rebel forces still dominated the railroad, and about 800 of their troops were still present around Messiah. Pendleton moved U.S. forces from Granada and had them advance towards rebel forces. A battery was sent from Leon to Managua as well, and prepared to attack. After an effective attack from the Nicaraguan government against the insurgents, rebel troops moved to Coyotepe, the tallest hill and one of the strongest natural military positions in the area. Butler's battalion, along with two artillery batteries, moved west of Coyotepe Hill on the night of October 2nd and 3rd. Pendleton sent one last offer to the rebel leader and demanded he surrenders himself and his troops. He refused, and Marine artillery bombarded their position throughout the day. They wreaked substantial damage, but this wasn't enough to cause the rebels to surrender. So the Marines prepared to advance. In the early morning on October 4th, Marines moved towards their target under cover of darkness. The Marine force included the 1st Battalion under the command of McKelvey, 3rd Battalion, consisting of two companies of Marines and a company of sailors from the Annapolis, were commanded by Smedley Butler, and a battalion of sailors from the California headed towards the hill. When they arrived, McKelvey took the center, Butler had the left flank, and the sailors from the California took the right flank. 
Nicaraguan troops agreed to participate in the attack, but they never showed up. U.S. forces decided to go on without them. Insurgents established a strong defense, and they challenged the advancement of U.S. troops. McKelvey's Marines led the advance up the center, and they experienced the greatest losses. But the rebels were taken by surprise, and the Marines were able to capture their position. The entire battle only lasted 37 minutes. It wasn't until after the battle that Nicaraguan troops decided to finally join U.S. forces. Soon after the situation was under control, Butler placed troops in Messiah and he restored order. During the battle, the U.S. had four killed and 14 wounded, while the rebels had 60 killed and an unknown number of troops injured. This defeat was catastrophic for the rebels. They were still occupying Lyon, and Sutherland decided that they would be the next target. U.S. forces, under Marine Lieutenant Colonel Charles Long, were supplemented with additional troops, bringing the total U.S. forces in Lyon to around 1,200. On December 6th, they commenced their mission of removing rebels from the city. This task was relatively easy. The rebels weren't organized, and their leadership wasn't close to having the situation under control. Rebel leaders quickly agreed to surrender to U.S. troops. There were a few drunk insurgents who started looting and firing into the town. The Marines responded to this outburst and resulted in one Marine and two sailors being killed. One sailor was wounded. Fifty rebels were killed before they decided to flee. This battle was one of the last big disputes for the Marines. Throughout the country, a few other Marine detachments saw attacks and another five Marines were wounded during this engagement. On October 11th, the Nicaraguan government offered amnesty to all rebels who freely gave up their arms. Towards the end of October, most of Nicaragua returned to its state before the rebellion. The Nicaraguan government took control of their country, and Sutherland sent a few detachments of Marines to important towns and railways, and the remaining troops prepared to leave the country. Pendleton was in charge of the detachments of Marines and sailors still deployed to Nicaragua, and the government was grateful for the help of the United States. But the liberal forces felt otherwise. U.S. forces began to head back to the United States in early November, while Pendleton helped Nicaragua establish a more stable government. On November 22nd, Pendleton's Marines started to leave as well, and on the 16th of January, 1913, most Marines were gone, except for a detachment of about four officers and 101 enlisted. The Navy also kept the ship nearby to help out the Marines, if needed. But like other interventions during the Banana Wars, corruption ensued the reoccupation by the country's government. Elections weren't fair, and Nicaraguan conservatives held their power by controlling the democratic process. Without a fair election system, the only path liberals had to gain control was through a revolution. In 1921, rebels began to cause turmoil within the country again. Additional Marine detachments were sent in to help in January 1922, and the situation slowly started to lose control again, and it soon became clear that the Nicaraguan government couldn't govern the country without the help of Marines. The U.S. government held off sending more troops until a formidable Nicaraguan force could be established and protect their own country. 
The last of the Marines were withdrawn in August 1925, but they wouldn't be away for long. Soon after the Marines left, the assumption that Nicaragua couldn't control the country came to fruition. The country soon broke out in the worst civil war in Nicaraguan history. A coalition government was in place, led by President Carlos Soloranzo. However, there was unrest within the conservative party, and the political group started to take different stands. In October 1925, a coup was orchestrated by General Camoro, a conservative candidate who lost during a previous election. He seized Loma, forced the Nicaraguan president to eliminate all liberals in the government, and elected himself as the new president. The United States didn't recognize Camoro as the new president. The former vice president of Nicaragua and a liberal, Dr. Juan Sacaza, traveled to the United States and tried to convince Washington to intervene. A landing force of Marines were sent to Nicaragua with the explicit orders to protect American lives and property, but remain neutral in the Civil War. They arrived on May 6th and would stay in country for a month. Throughout this time, liberal forces managed to regain control of many cities. And in response, another landing force of around 200 Marines and sailors landed and made Bluefields a neutral zone. As soon as the Marines arrived, another conference was called and Camoro met with liberal forces. The two Nicaraguan parties requested that the United States provide a detachment of sailors and Marines to guard the conference and protect the representatives attending. The United States agreed, but the conference wasn't as productive this time, and neither faction could agree on a peace settlement. Shortly after the meeting ended, conflict started up again. Camoro realized that he wouldn't be able to control the situation, and he relinquished the presidency. Diaz took his old seat as president again, but liberal forces still weren't satisfied with the sitting president, and they continued to recruit more members. They received a considerable number of supplies and weapons from Mexico. The Civil War started to impact Nicaraguan exports, and U.S. fruit, lumber, and mining companies in eastern Nicaragua started to feel the impact. They requested help from the United States government. The neutral zone in Bluefield showed some promising results, and soon, the system of neutral zones was refined. Multiple detachments were sent throughout the country. Both factions were prohibited from using any type of force in neutral zones. Any military force was required to leave or turn in their weapons and ammunition. But conflicts remained throughout the country. The eastern part of Nicaragua was underdeveloped and modern travel wasn't common due to the lack of roads. All travel took place either on trains or in waterways. Whenever a faction needed to travel in the east, they simply stole foreign-owned boats. U.S. companies didn't like the idea of their property being confiscated, and the Secretary of State, Kellogg, asked for a naval force at Puerto Cabeza to protect property. As the year ended, Liberal forces made considerable progress with the rebellion. They were able to win decisive victories at the Rio Grande and Pearl Lagoon. On December 22nd, 130 Marines and sailors landed at the Rio Grande and established a neutral zone. 
Another landing force of sailors and marines established a neutral zone at Puerto Cabeza. The United States sent naval forces to support the troops on shore and made most ports a neutral zone. Liberal forces opposed United States activity in Nicaragua. They argued that U.S. involvement was not neutral and all activities tended to favor conservatives. But their complaints were ignored and the United States sent more Marines to support the troops already occupying the country. The 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, commanded by Colonel James Meade, was sent from Guantanamo Bay to Bluefields. They arrived on January 10, 1927. Another detachment of Marines from the Denver established a neutral zone at Pearl Lagoon. 100 sailors and Marines were sent to Principalca to set up yet another neutral zone. Meade's battalion of Marines landed at Bluefields. They headed up the Escondido River and established one more neutral zone in a liberal stronghold of Rama. The United States declared the Escondido River as neutral, and rebel forces moved their troops north. They managed to assemble a large force, and their support for a revolution against Diaz was quickly growing. In January 1927, liberal leader General Moncada supplemented troops and began marching west. In response to this movement, the United States landed 175 sailors and marines from the Galveston on January 6th, and they established a guard force to protect foreign interest. As the tensions escalated, many other foreign countries requested support from the United States to help protect their citizens in the area as well. More marines were sent in to account for the added responsibility. On February 7th, Rebel forces seized Chinandega after defeating 300 Nicaraguan troops. In the process, they stopped the service of the railway from Corinto to Managua. Service started again two days later, but the United States decided to turn the entire railway into a neutral zone. On February 19th, a rifle company and a machine gun platoon traveled to Managua to Lyon, specifically to guard this railway. A landing party from the Milwaukee, the Rally, and the Galveston were sent to ensure train service was uninterrupted in Shenandoah. 200 more Marines were sent to Corinto on February 21st, and some of them were sent to help at Shenandoah and Lyon. Two days later, the Marines occupied the Loma at Managua, and although the United States supplied a massive number of troops, the Liberal Rebellion continued to grow. The tide started to turn, and after the Nicaraguan government lost a battle at Muy Muy, many of their soldiers abandoned the Nicaraguan government and joined the Liberal Army. But despite the growing rebellion, the United States still supported Diaz as president of Nicaragua. In addition to providing U.S. troops, the United States sold 3,000 rifles, 200 machine guns, and 3 million rounds of ammunition to the Nicaraguan government. This conflict was growing. To compensate for the additional rebel forces, the United States sent more troops in and increased the number of neutral zones in Nicaragua. The last of the 5th Regiment of Marines were sent in, this time with an aviation squadron. Brigadier General Logan Phelan was put in command of all forces in western Nicaragua. There were 14 neutral zones established, 
15 if you include the railroad. By the middle of March, the number of U.S. troops supporting Nicaragua was around 2,000. And during this time, Henry Stimson, the former Secretary of War, but recalled by President Coolidge as a special commissioner to Nicaragua, described the condition of the country. Quote, The long-continued disorder and violence had also produced a general disintegration in the social fabric of the country. Semi-independent bands of marauders were taking advantage of the situation to plunder even the settled districts. Our minister had reported to Washington that a general condition of anarchy was probably approaching. The country was reaching a tipping point, and if the United States was going to continue its intervention, the time has come for further involvement. Coolidge sent Stimson to Nicaragua to develop a plan to end the conflict within the country. And in April 1927, he headed off to Nicaragua to complete the Stimson mission. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll take a look at the Stimson mission, as well as the U.S. strategy to unarm rebel forces and police Nicaragua. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is Animal Farm by George Orwell. This audiobook is just a freebie for everyone. The last time I read Animal Farm was in high school over 20 years ago. When I read it, the book really didn't resonate with me. I saw the book on Audible and decided to listen to it while I was building a new chicken coop. As I've gotten older, I realize that there is stuff I know, but I don't really understand, if that makes sense. Animal Farm was one of those examples. I knew the story, and I could talk to you about the book's message, but I didn't really understand it until recently. If it's been a while since you read the book, or if you've never read it, I encourage you to read it. The book is free on Audible. If you're new to Audible, I suggest spending your free credit on an audiobook that would typically cost money, and download Animal Farm later. It'll still be free. If you don't want to use Audible, the book is free online from other sources. There's text and audio versions. It's just a good book. So go out there, find it, read it. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help will be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.